If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at The Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. All right, let's open up to the book of Romans. Everybody okay this morning? All right. Hopefully everything runs good. We've had demons in the electronics all morning. Mics weren't working. The one TV wasn't working. I look on the inside. If you go real close, you can see ants crawling on the inside of that TV. So there's ants in the TV, clearly demonic ants, devil ants out of that TV now. We're going to cast them. I don't know. No, it's probably just regular old ants. Why do they like TVs? Is there food in there? I don't know. They like anything electronic. Our electrician said they like electronics. All right, well, we are continuing our study through the book of Romans, as you well know, and today the message is called, A Gift by His Grace, and I love talking about God's grace, largely because I have been such a recipient of God's grace that I love to talk about it, but also because when we understand God's grace, it centers us on Christ. And when we really understand God's grace, it correctly orders our thinking. What I mean by that is this. When we understand grace, it keeps us from thinking too highly of ourselves because it's undeserved, right? It's unearned. It's a gift. It's an extravagant gift given to us. We didn't do anything and we can't boast in it. So it keeps us from thinking too highly of ourselves. But Grace, if we really understand it, also keeps us from thinking too lowly of ourselves, right? Because what grace says is that you're loved immensely, that you're chosen in spite of your failures to be a daughter or a son of the king, extravagant gift given to us. So I absolutely love grace. And the whole book of Romans is really trying to explain this grace to us. It's a deep dive in explaining how it is even possible for sinful humanity to be justified before a holy God. The book of Romans really is this detailed explanation of the only possible approach to God. And what we're studying today is called the heart of the book of Romans here in chapter 3. So we'll just read through the text, we'll pray, and we'll begin to unpack it. We'll read uh, Romans 3, beginning in verse 19, we'll go down to 28. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And now here's where the book of Romans takes its turn. It tells us that all have fallen short of the glory, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then verse 24 says, but being justified 
as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For He demonstrated, I say, of the righteousness at this present time, so that he would be, and this is an important part of what we're talking about this morning, he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting, right? Can we now boast? It is excluded, meaning no. By what kind of law of works? No. By law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Let's pray. Lord, we pray you would take these truths of your grace and just to expose them new and fresh to our heart. If we really understand grace that has been lavished upon us, it'll affect every part of our life. It will affect the way that we think of ourselves. It will affect the way that we think about you. It will affect our worship. It will affect the way that we pray. It will affect the way that we treat other people. It will affect everything. So, Lord, renew in us how precious your grace is. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The reason I pray that is is because what we're talking about this morning isn't going to be new information to most of you. Most of you guys are saved by grace. But it's awful important to back up every once in a while, and that's why we teach through the Bible like this, to back up and remind ourselves what grace really is. Because when we apply it to our lives, it changes every aspect of our lives, right? And so what we've been doing thus far in the book of Romans is we've been going through what we call kind of the bad news portion of Romans. Paul takes that, as we've talked about, about the first two and a half chapters of the book of Romans to expose the lostness of humanity. And this right here where we are today is kind of the culmination of the bad news portion. We see it in verse 19 and 23. Verse 19 says, so that every mouth will be closed and the world will be accountable before God. Another translation, the New Living says that the whole world will be guilty before God. We'll all have that consciousness. And then the apex of the bad news portion of the gospel is there in verse 23, right? A verse that's very commonly used in the church. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. John Stott commenting on these first two and a half chapters of the book of Romans and the purpose of them says, that the purpose is this, that all human beings of every race and rank, every creed and culture, Jew and Gentile, the immoral and the moralizing, the religious and the irreligious, are without exception sinful, guilty, inexcusable, and speechless before God. I think that sums up very well that first about two and a half chapters of the book of Romans. But we've been studying this for a few weeks, and you know this. And we understand that it's mandatory. This is a mandatory part of the gospel, that we would first 
before we get into the good news, we would understand ourselves as having lived defiant to the Lord. His word, His will, His way, we've had warped thinking. We've held so many other things above God, and we came far from God, right? That's an important thing for us to understand. If we don't understand that, we'll never seek a Savior, right? You're never going to look for a saving if you, don't need, if you don't know that you need saving, right? But, but we've been studying this for a while, and you guys understand this. You, you, we, I mean, if you don't understand that we're sinners by this point, how many sermons have we done on the fact that we are sinners in the last few weeks? But the thing is that even at this point, with this understanding that we are sinners, there, there's a new danger that now arises. Because we might start to think that we need to fix the problem. A new danger arises. As soon as we have this consciousness of our sin, there then comes in this temptation towards religious works, right? As soon as we understand ourselves as a sinner, we then start to think, well, maybe I need to justify myself before God. I got to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I got to do better. I got to clean up my life to be acceptable to God. You go down the list. I need to serve more and give more and read more Bible. I got to jump through more hoops so that I might make myself acceptable to God, that I can come to Him. And the reality is of the world that we live in, the world over, people are doing this. The world over, people are trying to work hard enough to get to whatever God that they're trying to get to. They're they're striving to produce their own righteousness so that they might earn favor with God. Most of the world is working from the axiom that if God is a good God, then He's going to like and reward good people. So all I really need to do is be good more than I'm bad, and I should be okay. Most of the world is operating on this type of thinking, and you might have run across people like that yourself, or or you might yourself think that way. You may never have processed the grace of God. You might think that that's what you're here doing. I came to church this morning to do a good thing so I might outweigh the bad things I did this week. And what happens then is people let their supposed goodness or their perceived goodness keep them from Jesus. And this is one of Satan's favorite things to whisper into the ears of church-going people. That when he's up there preaching about sinners, he's really talking about those really bad people. He's not talking about you at all. Don't, don't worry about this gray stuff. You don't need this stuff. So that's why Paul took the first two and a half chapters of the book of Romans to give us this sense that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You with me? So once we get that, there's always been the danger that I might need to earn my way to God because I now see the deficiency in myself. And that's why the next thing Paul does is tell us we can't earn it. In verse 20 he says, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in 
his sight. He just said, you can't be good enough. You can't jump through enough hoops. You're not going to make it on your effort. Verses 27 and 28, I'll read them in the New Living. They say this, so can we boast then that we have done the things to be acceptable to God? The answer, of course, is no, because your acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith so that we might be right with God through faith and not by the obeying of the law. Jesus said it this way to the people that were around him in his day. He said, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, think about that. If you're just an average farmer in Galilee in the days of Jesus, and you've got these scribes and Pharisees, these priests that are up at the temple, and they're serving the Lord every single day, and they're the guys doing the sacrifices, and they're doing all the religious stuff. These are the most devout guys that they knew. These were the most zealous guys. These guys were doing more religious stuff than anybody else you knew in that day. These are the guys that are keeping the most rules. And what did Jesus just tell you? You got to be holier than the holiest guy that you know to get into heaven. And so he's saying that the most righteous person that you know isn't getting in on their effort. And the point is obvious, that the chasm between a holy God and a sinful people is so vastly wide that no one of us can cross it in our own effort. I think we often in humanity miss this. Because we gauge our goodness by other people, and we go like, all right, I'm better than that guy, so I must be pretty good. But we miss that we're not gauging it by other people. We're gauging it by a holy God that is like, holy, 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 holy. Like Isaiah had this vision of God, and he says, woe is me, I'm absolutely toast. Right? This is just like, I'm in big time trouble. John in the book of Revelation has a vision of God and it says that he fell on the ground face down like a dead man. Like he's like, maybe if I don't move, he won't strike me like with lightning bolts because he's so holy and I'm not. I mean, that's the God we're talking about. You see, there's this chasm that is so far and so deep and so wide between where we're at and where God's at. In fact, the Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6, that we are all infected and impure with sin. And when we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags. Like, because we go out and we go like, you know what, I could go today and do a whole bunch of good stuff, couldn't I? I could help this person, I could do this, not be a good deed. And the Bible just said, even that good deed in comparison to God, filthy rags. You're not even close. See, vast chasm. I, I thought about it this week, um, this way. I'm going to picture the Grand Canyon here. You see that tree on the left? 
Like I had this vision that maybe all of us one day were sitting around here and the sermon's bad like it is this week. And you're like, hey, let's take a trip to the Grand Canyon. And so all of us get on a bus. We ride down to the airport. We fly to the Grand Canyon. We walk out and we're standing by that tree. And we decide all of a sudden that we're going to jump to the other side, like every one of us. And so what we do is we all line up together, right? And we say, okay, let's take turns. And we're going to run with all of our might. And we're going to give our biggest jump. And we're going to jump to the other side. We all decide to do this. We all line up together and, and we start taking turns, right? And of course, like some guy's going to make it about 15 feet, right? I'm probably going to make it about eight. The best, most athletic jumper that we have in the room and we could go outside and test this if you want, but he might make it 20 feet. Like, man, he, whew, he went. But we all ended up in the same place, didn't we? We're all in a pile at the bottom. Because regardless of our effort, as hard as we tried, as, as you know, much as we poured into that run and the biggest leap that we could come up with, it fell well, well, well short of the distance that we needed to get to the other side. And that's what Paul's been trying to tell us for two and a half chapters. That's the bad news of the gospel. Your leap ain't getting you there, man. But then comes verse 24. And this is what's called the hinge of the book of Romans. This is where the whole thing turns around from the bad news to the good news. Because now we're well aware that, that we're all sinners. We're, we're well aware that we're helpless and hopeless to work our way out of our predicament. And into that, the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul says this, but we can be justified as a gift by His grace. Amen? We can be justified. We can make it all the way over, but it's going to be a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or a sacrifice in His blood through faith. So the first thing that that passage tells us is that we can be justified. Now I want to talk about this term a little bit because it's important we understand it. First of all, we need to understand that justification is not some sort of a gradual process by which we clean ourselves up. Justification is an instantaneous event whereby you are declared righteous before God. In a moment, in a second, in the twinkling of an eye, you're declared righteous before God, meaning that moments earlier you were unworthy to come to a holy God, and then all of a sudden you are now worthy to come to Him. In fact, it the word justification is a legal term, meaning that a judge has declared you not guilty in the eyes of the law. In a moment of time, his gavel fell and he says, not guilty. He has acquitted you. He has cleared you of all charges. And when we think about it as a legal term, we need to remind ourselves that any good judge is going to, first of all, be right and just, meaning that he has to punish those that are guilty, 
and he has to acquit those that are innocent, right? That, that's how we judge whether a judge is good, right? We get bummed when we see somebody that is guilty and they get acquitted, right? We're like, oh, that's a travesty. But a really true, fair, and righteous judge will always punish the guilty and will always acquit the innocent. And this is the dilemma of God, right? How is it possible that he can remain perfectly righteous as a judge and yet still at the same time acquit guilty sinners? How is it possible that he can be true to who he is, righteous and just, and yet extend to us an acquittal, clear us of our sin? And the answer is verse 25, that God displayed Jesus publicly as a propitiation in his blood, meaning that God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. He went in our place. That word propitiation is just kind of a big fancy Bible term, but it, it just means that it's a sacrifice that satisfies the judgment of God it means that Jesus took the full price of our sin, not a little bit of it, and you now need to work for the rest. He didn't get you halfway over the Grand Canyon. You got to make a leap for the rest. It means that he, that he took it all. It means that the judge took the sentence upon himself. That's what it ultimately means. And, and so now Romans 8.1 says that there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ. That means there's a full acquittal. Those who belong to Christ, there's a full acquittal. There's this story that I came across some time back of um, Fiorillo Linguardia. He was the mayor of New York City, and obviously the airport was named, Linguardia Airport was named after the mayor. He was the mayor of New York City during the hardest times of the Depression. And there's this story, and it's well documented. You can go look it up, because uh, it was recorded in the papers and everything the next day, that Mayor LaGuardia one night went into the courtroom of the worst district of New York City, and he relieved the judge that was there. And it doesn't tell us why. I don't know if the judge, like, needed to go home, or he was sick, or he had, you know, his wife was sick, or having a baby, who, who knows, we can speculate why he needed to leave, but they called the judge, uh, the mayor, and they're like, you know, hey, you used to be a judge, could you come down and sit and preside over the proceedings this evening in the court, and he did that in 1935, he goes down to the courtroom, and it wasn't long as this judge sitting on the bench, Judge LaGuardia now, that this really tattered old woman was brought before him. And she was accused of and charged with stealing a loaf of bread. And she was caught red-handed by the store clerk, and she ended up pleading guilty to the charge. But she did explain the reasons under which she stole the bread. She told Judge Linguardia that her, wife, her daughter's husband had left the family her daughter was really, really ill, and her two grandchildren were now on the verge of starving to death. 
And so grandma was now in charge of trying to find food for them, cannot, and out of sheer desperation, went and stole a loaf of bread. Well, Judge LaGuardia, of course, you know, he's hearing the story. The shopkeeper's hearing the story. He's like, dude, maybe we could just like let this one slide. And the shopkeeper said no. He said, justice must be served here. He says, you know, this is the worst neighborhood in the city, and we've got to make an example, and justice must be served. And so it quotes Judge LaGuardia as turning to the woman and saying, I must punish you. Justice demands your punishment. And the sentence for a crime like this in 1935 was $10 or 10 days in prison. Of course, the old lady doesn't have $10. She had $10, she would have bought the bread. She doesn't have $10, so that means 10 days in prison. But if she goes to prison for 10 days, her grandchildren die because they're on the verge of starving already. Now, we need to understand that that, my friends, is justice. That's what justice is. A crime was committed. A sentence was passed. That's justice. But the story goes on to say that before the gavel fell, Judge LaGuardia had his hand in his pocket and he pulled out a $10 bill and he paid the $10 fine for the elderly lady that was there. And so the judge himself paid the sentence that he himself issued. That is mercy, right? And so Judge LaGuardia was able to be both just and merciful at the same time. He passed a justice uh, a sentence which was right and just, but he also paid the penalty himself, which was mercy. But that's not the end of the story either. I guess this guy was quite a character and was known for being a little bit uh, funny and flamboyant. And so it says that Judge LaGuardia then fined everybody in the courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where an elderly lady has to steal bread to feed her grandchildren. So he made everybody in the room cough up 50 cents, including the storekeeper that was there to prosecute her. And the newspaper reported the very next day that a grand total of $47.50 was collected. And to everybody's amazement, LaGuardia gave that $47.50 to the old lady so that she could feed her grandchildren. And that, my friends, is grace. You see, there's a difference, isn't there? And so justice was served, mercy was given, and then there was the beauty of the grace that came in behind. And that's what God does for us on a far, far, far larger scale, isn't it? The penalty is our spiritual death and eternal separation from God for our sin. That's right. That's just. That's what God must do if he's really a righteous and just God. Because we have rebelled against a holy, holy God. His sentence is right and just. But what does he do? He himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, leaves heaven, comes to earth, and he then pays the full price of our punishment. He paid our debt. Jesus became sin with our sinfulness, 
that we might become righteous with his righteousness. And that's why verse 26 then says that God is both just and the justifier, right? He is both the judge and he is himself the payment. That is mercy. But it's still not the end of the story, is it? Because what does he give us? Eternal life in his presence. Where Psalm 16 says, there is the joy, the fullness of joy in the presence of the Lord and where there is pleasures forevermore. And so we are the recipients then of grace, eternal life, as well as meaning and purpose for this life because we now get to live for His kingdom. We get to have this dynamic relationship with God that begins here on earth and, and continues for all eternity with God in heaven. That's grace. It's justice, mercy, and grace all wrapped together in the cross of Jesus Christ. And verse 24 tells us that that gift, or that that grace, comes as a gift. The free gift of God. In fact, Paul goes on to say this multiple times. In Romans chapter 6, 23, he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2, 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, but it's what? A gift of God. And that's grace. Grace is a gift. It keeps us from thinking too highly of ourselves. Because you didn't earn it. I didn't earn it. But it keeps us from thinking too lowly of ourselves. Because we are so immensely loved that Jesus went to the cross. Now, the final thing that, that I want to bring up is the means by which we receive this grace. The means by which we receive it. And it's only by faith. Look at verse 22. I'll read it in the New Living. I think it communicates well. I think we have it up here on the screen too. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true of everyone who believes, no matter who you are. That kind of helps because it takes away that idea that I've been too bad. I could never come to God. Listen to it. We're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true of how many people? The guys that did pretty good most of their life, right? No, of everyone who believes, no matter who you are. It says in verse 25, for God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins, and people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life in shedding his blood. And then in verse 27 and 28, again, the means being that of, of faith. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be acceptable by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based in what? Faith, that so we are made right with God through faith and not the obeying of the law. Salvation comes by faith and faith alone. When the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 asked Paul and Silas, 
how do I get what you guys have? He said, sirs, how may I be saved? Their answer was what? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Jesus says it multiple times, too many for us to cover in, in one setting, but I thought I'd give you one example. John 6, 40, I like this one. He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Everyone who believes, everyone who comes to Jesus by faith on your last day, guess what happens? Guess who you see? Jesus. And he raises you up. John Stott, commenting on the uniqueness of God's plan to save us by faith, said this. He said, justification, its source God and his grace, its grounds Christ and his cross, its means faith alone altogether apart from works, is the heart of the gospel and unique to Christianity. No other system, ideology, or religion proclaims a free forgiveness and a new life to those that have done nothing to deserve it and a lot to deserve justice, judgment instead. On the contrary, all other systems teach some form of self-salvation through good works of religion, righteousness, or philanthropy. Christianity, by contrast, is not in essence a religion at all. It is a gospel, the gospel, good news that God's grace has turned away his wrath, that God's son has died our death and bore our judgment, that God has had mercy on undeserving, on the undeserving, and that there is nothing left for us to do or ever contribute, contribute. Faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. I like that. I wish I could think of things like that. There's one thing, though, that I want to make sure that everybody in this room understands, because I understand most of you have come to Christ. But one thing I want you to understand about faith because someone could sit in a church for years and never truly understand what real faith is. Never really understand what biblical faith is. And in that then, they may never actually let go and make Jesus the Lord of their life. And I want to make sure that's not a problem in here because I got I to gotta say, that much of the counseling that I do is because people aren't making Jesus the Lord of their life and the scriptures the authority of their life. And so it's important that we understand that faith is not merely believing that Jesus exists. Because I'm guessing you're sitting in a church, most of you guys believe that Jesus existed. And faith is not merely believing that Jesus even did most of the things that we read about in the Bible. Faith is not believing that Jesus existed, and faith is not believing that Jesus walked on water. Faith is putting the full weight of your trust in the person of Jesus Christ to save you 
and to transform you. There's a vast difference. You see, I got this stool and I brought it for an example. This is not a new illustration, but I thought it was a good one. I'm guessing that most people in this room believe this is a stool, right? Anybody in here don't believe this is a stool? Okay, good. We're off to a roaring start. We all believe that this is a stool, but none of us have put our faith in it, have we? We believe, but there's no faith in it. I'm guessing that most of us believe that the stool could hold us up if we were to walk over there and sit down on it. But we haven't put our faith in the stool just because we believe that it could hold us up. You see, it's not actually faith until we put the full weight of our trust in the stool. Now it's faith. It's a full commitment. I'm all the way in. Let me ask you, has there been a moment in your life when you have put the full weight of your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Not just leaning on it every once in a while and then doing your own thing all the rest of the time. I mean really walking over, picking your feet up and swinging them around kind of faith that I believe He's going to carry me. The full commitment kind. The kind that, that goes to Jesus and says, I surrender. You are now the Lord of my life, and I have decided to spend the rest of my life trusting you and following you. That's what biblical faith is. What the Bible teaches us, and what this passage teaches us, is that in the moment that we do that, we are then given a gift. A gift by His grace of salvation. And we're given the promise that on our last day, He Himself will raise us up to be with Him. And that's hard for some people to grasp. That that's what it takes. Because if we're honest, you and I, we know. We live in a very performance-based culture, don't we? we? We understand that when we walk outside these doors, nothing's for free, is it? You've got to work hard. You, you've got to study hard. You've got to put in the hours. You've got to act the right way and jump through the right hoops. And if you do, you might make it in this world. You'll get ahead. And that's true of a lot of areas of our life, isn't it? But it's not true of God. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a gospel of grace. That all of the work required for your salvation has already been done in the person of Jesus Christ. And all He asks for us to do is walk up and put our faith in Him. Well, I understand most of you guys are believers in this room, but I want to ask this morning, if there's anybody here who's never put that full weight, you've been in and out of church, you believe that Jesus existed, you believe the story that, you know, he broke the bread and fed the 5,000, and you believe some things about Jesus, but it's not real faith. I want to ask this morning, is there anybody in here that, that wants to put their full weight in Jesus Christ this morning, just stand up where you're at. If not, we'll get to worshiping. Because I think this message is worthy of some worshiping, don't you? But is there anybody here that says this morning, I've never put that full weight in Christ, and I want to do it right now? Okay. 
Well, I don't know what else. There we go. Amen. Amen. I almost went too quick. Is there anybody else? Bless you guys. Anybody else? Okay. Well, let me pray with you guys. Lord Jesus, right now, we commit our lives or we recommit them. Lord Jesus, right now, we say that we have believed things about you. But right now, we want to put our full trust in you, our full commitment. We surrender, and we now make you the absolute, undisputed Lord of our life. And so we now choose to follow you. We know that we will fall down, but with our full trust in you, we know that you will pick us up. And we choose to continue and to continue and to continue following you our trust and our weight fully upon you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen. Hey guys, let's just worship. This is, this is good news worthy of worship. I mean, if we can't listen to, to that little chunk of scripture in worship, there's something wrong with us. Let's give him his due.